coming up on Economics Explored. But what I saw was something deadly serious uh, that this indicator embodied uh, the Austrian business cycle theory or the business cycle theory of the Austrian school and the Austrian economist dating all the way back to Ludwig von Mises. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 118 on the Skyscraper Index and Curse. Why is it that the construction of the tallest building in the world so often happens just before an economic crisis? This was the case with the Empire State Building in New York, the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, and the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the current tallest building in the world. This episode, I discuss the Skyscraper Index with Professor Mark Thornton, Senior Fellow of the Mises Institute. Mark has served as a member of the graduate faculties of Auburn University and Columbus State University, and he was awarded the University Research Award at Columbus State University in 2002. He has taught economics at Auburn University at Montgomery and Trinity University in Texas. Mark served as Assistant Superintendent of Banking and as Economic Advisor to Governor Fob James of Alabama from 1997 to 1999. Mark is a graduate of St. Bonaventure University and he received his PhD in economics from Auburn University. In 2014, Mark debated the war on drugs at the prestigious Oxford Union. Mark was on the opposing team against the war on drugs. Finally, Mark is arguably the world's leading expert on the skyscraper index, which we discuss in this episode. Regarding the skyscraper index, I should note that what was planned to be the new world's tallest building, the proposed one kilometre high Jeddah Tower in Saudi Arabia, has been on hold since 2019. If they end up starting that project up again, you may ask, after listening to this episode, whether that could be a sign of a coming crisis. Who knows? Maybe it's a special case. Maybe the skyscraper index isn't a perfect indicator. After you listen to this episode, please let me know what you think. Indeed, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or to previous episodes, then please either record them in a message via SpeakPipe, see the link in the show notes or email them to me via contact at economicsexplored.com. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and for any clarifications. You can find the show notes via your podcasting app or at our website, economicsexplored.com. Righto, now for my conversation with Professor Mark Thornton on the Skyscraper Index. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Professor Mark Thornton, Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute. Thanks for joining me on the program. Gene, it's great to be with you here today. Excellent, uh, Mark. Uh, Now, you've received some renown for your work on what is called the Skyscraper Index. Would you be able to explain exactly what that is, please? 
Well, it's easy to explain. It's the eerie correlation between the building of a world record-setting skyscraper and an economic collapse, usually on a worldwide basis. So you have juxtapose, you know, the, the greatest of the great economic times and human accomplishment on the one hand, and then shortly thereafter, you enter usually a world economic crisis. So it's a great indicator. And it leads to what is called the skyscraper curse. Ah, right. Okay. So what are some examples of this having occurred, Mark? Are there some famous examples of this or infamous? Sure. Um, there, these things come in waves. And so in the 1920s, Americans on the island of Manhattan in New York were busy building 40 Wall Street, which set a world record, the Chrysler Building, which set a world record in 1930, I believe, and then the um, Empire State Building, which was opened in 1931, setting yet another world record. And of course, as they were building these mighty skyscrapers, all around New York, um, you know, things were the best that they'd ever been in human history, uh, particularly for those people who lived in New York and were benefiting from Wall Street. And then, of course, we entered the Great Depression. The same thing happened in the late 1960s, which in the United States and most other places around the world were great economic times. It was the longest continuous economic expansion in US history to that point. And we uh, built World Trade Towers one and two, setting new records for the first time in 40 years. And then the Sears Tower, which has subsequently been renamed, but it set a record at almost the same height. And, uh, opened in the early 1970s, and then the United States entered one of its most prolonged economic slumps. It's called the stagflation of the 1970s, uh, but it actually ended in what I would call an economic depression in the United States from 1979 to 1982, when the United States had uh, over 10% unemployment and more than uh, basic interest rates of higher than 10%. Government bonds were selling for something like 18% interest rate returns. And of course, when the United States uh, has trouble, that gets reverberated around the world to our trading partners and our financial partners. Um, and uh, because it's such a large consumer market, these negative consequences, which start in the United States, uh, negatively affect people around the world. They certainly affect stock markets around the world. They affect, um, in both of those cases, of course, commodity prices in the 1930s um, and the, the inflation-adjusted uh, you know, situation in the United States was such that it was a calamity for commodity producers around the world. So 
this is a very strange, unique indicator about the economy. Um, and I first caught wind of it uh, from a real estate analyst working in Hong Kong named Andrew Lawrence. Um, I guess that was in 1999 when I came across this whole idea of the skyscraper index that, that he put together uh, in the skyscraper curse. Uh, we were about to experience another curse here um, in our technology industry. Um, and what I saw, everybody else kind of laughed it off mm. uh, in the business press. And back then we still had magazines. So all of the magazines made fun of this whole idea. They all wrote about it because it's interesting and entertaining. But what I saw was something deadly serious uh, that this indicator embodied uh, the Austrian business cycle theory or the business cycle theory of the Austrian school and the Austrian economist dating all the way back to Ludwig von Mises. Um, and of course, that's a, still a very big topic uh, today within Austrian economic circles, but also, of course, um, economists uh, and uh, finance experts are talking about the business cycle. Where are we? When is the next shoe going to drop? Where did all this inflation come from? Why is real estate and land prices um, at record levels in important pockets of real estate all around the world? Why mm. is all this happening and how to make sense of it? Absolutely. So can I ask about uh, the late 90s? Were you looking at, the, there were those towers in Malaysia were there, uh, the Petronas Towers, is that right? And was that a, did they uh, predict the Asian financial crisis? Was that one of the examples you were looking at? Yes. I mean, that's when the, really the important core of the financial economy had moved to Asia, uh, along with Japan in the 1980s, uh, Taiwan with its semiconductor industry, Hong Kong with the financial industry that was financing all of this, uh, the Asian tigers uh, that seemed to do so well when Japan had started to fall. And so they became the focus of the economy. And the Petronas Towers, I believe it opened in 1997. It set another record. Yeah. Uh, in terms of livable space inside of a, a skyscraper and height. And uh, that marked really the beginning of the uh, troubles in those Asian economies. And of course, that spread and dampened um, the, uh, the worldwide economy. Um, and then later on, as the boom in Asia um, moved from the Asian tigers, uh, specifically back to Taiwan and a couple of other countries and the United States, we had Taipei uh, 101 in Taiwan setting yet another record. So that was where the hot story was uh, in the economy. And that, that building actually opened after um, the economic and stock market collapse had taken place. So you had sort of bookends 
Um, Patronus Towers comes near the beginning um, of the Troubles and really during the peak uh, of the Asian Tigers. And then Taipei 101 opens, um, although it had set the record earlier, uh, it only had opened after um, everybody knew about these problems. So there's nothing exact or specific. It's very difficult to match up these records and what does a record-setting skyscraper actually mean um, and these events, these crucial events of economic history. But there were certainly two record-setting skyscrapers associated with that whole tech um, stock uh, bubble and bust. Yeah. And what about in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis? Were there, were there any notable uh, tallest buildings that uh, were associated with that? That's maybe one of the best examples of, because of the timing and, and also because I was around to actually make a forecast yeah. Uh, concerning all of this. So in Dubai, uh, one of the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East, uh, they embarked on building a record-setting skyscraper in the early 2000s. Uh, it actually set the record, we think, in late 2006 or 2007, um, and then setting a new, new world record height. And then, of course, Right after that, in 2007, we saw the financial meltdown um, and the economic meltdown, uh, the breakdown of the housing bubble in the United States and some of the other housing bubbles break. And then in 2010, the uh, Dubai Tower actually opened. And before it opened, the country and the ruler of Dubai actually went bankrupt and had to be bailed out. The bailout is estimated to be somewhere between five and $10 billion, which is a great deal of money for a very, very small country. And it opened, but the whole Dubai was completely buried economically speaking. And I've been told it was, in a relative sense, it was like a ghost town. And that was the time you might remember when people would drive Mercedes Benz and very expensive luxury cars to the airport that they had leased and just left the car there at the airport parking and taken off to go back to Europe or to go back to Asia. They were getting out <laughs> while the getting was good and they left their leased vehicles there for whoever wanted them. Right. That's what happened by the time that tower actually officially opened for business in January of 2010. So really, 2009, everybody was moving in. And a few reporters actually did enough research to find out that I had talked about this bubble and bust and the skyscraper index and curse back in 2007. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating index. It when uh, Darren, our mutual uh, acquaintance, Darren Brady Nelson, he he mentioned you'd be good to have on the program to speak about it, and I thought, oh, that's a 
That's a really clever idea. And it reminded me of something that occurred here in, I'm in the state of Queensland in Australia. And in the 1980s in Australia, we had a very, you know, we had a a huge boom in property and uh, in property development. And and, uh, our premier at the time here in Queensland had the idea we'd build the world's tallest building here in Brisbane. So there was all this exuberance. And uh, well, he, he was clo- he was he was trying to open us. Well, we were exporting a lot to Japan and to I think Taiwan and Korea, lots of coal and and mineral other minerals. And so the idea was we were I mean we were the the booming state and we build the world's tallest building. And it's just a complete folly when you think about it. it there's some there is some sort of basis for it, isn't there? I mean, people, they get, there's this over exuberance. Now you're probably better to explain this than I am because you can explain it in terms of economics and the, the there's this uh, Austrian economics view about it. So could you explain what the underlying economics are, please, Mark? I mean, noting that it, it's not, it, obviously it's not actually the building of the skyscraper itself that causes the crisis. It's a, it's an indicator. It, it, it's correlation rather than causation. Would you be able to explain the underlying economics, please? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And you're absolutely right. Um, and what I saw was a connection between this indicator and Austrian business cycle theory. And Austrian business cycle theory begins um, a cycle with an artificially low interest rate, which induces a boom in the economy. But what type of boom? And well, specifically, of course, interest rates are great for real estate because lower interest rates sort of automatically translates into higher asset prices. And homes and and businesses and skyscrapers and warehouses, that's all real estate. So real estate benefits directly uh, from lower interest rates And also, uh, more specifically, lower interest rates um, have a positive effect on land prices. So when interest rates are low or artificially low, uh, induced by a central bank like the Federal Reserve, this tends to put upward pressure on land prices. And specifically, it puts up very high upward pressure on land prices in the central business district. Okay, so that's where the interest rate effect on land prices is most heavily felt. Um, And so with urban land prices rising, as any construction person or real estate person or banker uh, will tell you, if you have a high land price, you have to put more square feet on that piece of property in order to pay for that higher price of land. So as land prices go up because of the lower interest rates, you have to put more square footage. And of course, the easiest way, uh, and it's not easy, it's expensive, is to add floors. Uh, to the construction plan. So as you go from one floor, you might have a thousand square feet. Uh, As you go to the second floor, you might have 1900. And the third floor, you get 2800. 
um, that sort of thing. So it induces uh, people to build higher. It also um, increases mergers and acquisitions. And this is a little difficult to follow, but mergers and acquisitions when small companies are bought up and conglomerated into very large companies, they need office space in central business districts. So if we took all the small dairy farmers around Auburn, Alabama, um, who you know are single family farms, and we bought them all up and merged them into one business, well, it would be a bigger business and it would need headquarters and it would need an HR department and it would have you know, a staff that takes care of all of the production and labor and so forth. And so they need an office space. And so lower interest rates, higher land prices, you need more office space in central business districts. And that induces, again, people to build taller. So all of these incentives that we're talking about with world record-setting skyscrapers, they all emanate up through the economy on the back of artificially low interest rates by the Federal Reserve or whatever central bank we're talking about. Okay. This would be a good place to talk about this Austrian view of the business cycle. So you're talking about artificially low interest rates. What exactly do you mean there? Are you, are you suggesting that the central bank, it's, it, it's keeping interest rates too low relative to what they should be to ensure a more stable economy? What, what, what exactly are you, um, is the Austrian, what's the Austrian school view there, please, Mark, if you could, if you could explain that, please. Well, it, it plays a central role in our macroeconomic analysis artificially low interest rates means that the central bank has to be pumping money into the economy in order to keep them artificially low. So they're buying up government bonds, or in the last several years, they've been buying uh, mortgages and, um, and other assets as well in Japan and the United States and probably elsewhere. And so that frees up money in the banks um, to make lower, to make more loans and also at lower interest rates. And the impact of those lower interest rates are not uniform. Uh, The people who make long-term investments, which normally we love, those people are helped more by those artificially low interest rates than people who are borrowing the money for current business activities that they're going to pay back uh, in the short run. So think of pharmaceutical research, for example, if the interest rate is 1% um, and those pharmaceutical companies have to pay researchers $100,000 or $80,000 a year for 20 years before those prescription drugs ever come onto the market, then, you know, you can do the present 
net present value calculations, that's going to help that type of investment tremendously. Yeah. Uh, compared to, you know, my department stores uh, borrowing for inventory and accounts receivable and things of that nature. So it's a big bonus. It's a big advantage for long-term uh, investors who can take advantage of the power of compound interest. And so one of the biggest long-term investments you can make is in a physical structure, a physical real estate structure. You know, all of those, you know, skyscrapers that I mentioned, with the exception of the World Trade Towers, they're still standing and there's been no talk of somehow dismantling them, even though some of them are almost 100 years old. So those are very long term investments and they are stimulated by these artificially low interest rates. Right. Yes. And it was interesting. It's interesting how some of these, they end up opening during the crash, don't they? Or after the, the, after the crash and during the subsequent uh, uh, recession or downturn. And certainly you mentioned what was it, the, the uh, Empire State Building opened in the, during the Depression. And so it must have remained mostly empty or largely empty for many of its early years. It's just extraordinary. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it's hard for real estate people. You know, we have some record setting buildings being built right around me right now. And, you know, they know that, you know, they're four stories underground parking and their ground level real um, uh, uh, retail space yeah. and the apartments above, you know, the apartments above are instantaneously full. Uh, the retail level is not instantaneously full. They know that they build into their plans that it may take a year, maybe two years to get to full capacity. So, you know, the Empire State Building, the people who owned that and were running that, they had no idea that that building was going to be under occupied for, well, until the United States uh, went into World War II. Um, you know, that building was under-occupied. I think it averaged less than 50% occupancy from 1931 to 1941. So that was a complete loser. And as a matter of fact, in New York City, they referred to the Empire State Building, which New York State is the Empire State. They referred to it in New York City as the Empty State Building because... <laughs> It, yeah. They had so few tenants and not a lot of economic activity with the tenants that they had. And of course, in order to induce tenants into the building, they had to cannibalize tenants from other buildings by offering discounts. So a lot of the other buildings around them uh, suffered some because the Empire State Building was just leasing the space to anybody who would take it. So it was a disaster. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can certainly see how you're having those low interest rates and can lead to that sort of 
instability. And uh, and then you have this, uh, what's the word, overhang, or you have all of this stock that has to get absorbed um, before there's going to be more construction. So, yeah, you end up with this boom-bust cycle. And, uh, yeah, I think there's uh, – I've increasingly become sympathetic toward the the Austrian view on these things. I have to do more reading into it. Uh, I used to work in the Treasury in Australia, so I, I, I tend to have a more sort of mainstream view of macro. Uh, yeah, I've started to see that if if the central bank is just focusing on something like a Taylor rule and it's just focusing on the CPI and the GDP gap, then yeah, you, the the central bank could be ignoring the the buildup of uh, instability in the economy. So uh, yeah, I think there's uh, that. That's absolutely right. I mean, the Austrian theory uh, has an explanation for the facts, and other theories in the business cycle also explain the facts, uh, but. The Austrian theory is microeconomic, and you'll recognize that you know, we talk about mergers and acquisition and land prices and real estate construction. This is all microeconomics. So when I say it's macroeconomics in the Austrian school, it's really just all microeconomics. And that's what I show in my book on the skyscraper curse, is that it's all everything that mainstream economists accept when you deal with these issues one by one, and there's mainstream evidence to all these points in my book on the skyscraper curse, it's just that the economic explanation that the Austrians provide just simply isn't accepted. Keynesians think that everything is more psychological, and most of our fellow economists at the Fed and some of the universities, they think it uh, business cycles are the result of real shocks in the economy. And the Austrians integrate the real shocks and the psychology within this microeconomic framework. So we don't disagree that there are real shocks and we don't disagree that there are psychological factors. It's just that we show through microeconomics. Um, and the time value of money and things of that nature, that the shocks and the psychology changes and shifts are brought about, not exogenously, but very much endogenously. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, can I ask about the theories of, there's a classical economist of I've seen referenced in regard to the skyscraper index, uh, Cantillon or Cantillon. Would you be able to yes. explain what, why he is referenced in this context, please? Well, he's, um, he's someone I've done a lot of research on. Uh, I've written a new translation of his one book, uh, an essay on the nature of commerce in general. And it's really surprising when you read The Economist before him and after him only a few people were actually influenced because he was killed before the book was ever published. Um, and he's subsequently been rediscovered. And basically, he lays out for the first time economics 
and he is the quote teacher of Adam Smith and David Hume and Jean Baptiste Say and Turgot and all of these people, the physiocrats. But in it, he he shows he talks about interest rates and the money supply and exchange rates in such a way that he shows something that's very difficult to see, even in government statistics. It's hard to see the fact that injecting new money into the economy can have distribution effects. And so that's been labeled in the modern literature, Cantillon effects. Uh, So that now he talked about it as new gold supplies, but it's not too much of a stretch to say, well, the money's coming as a result of central bank policy rather than new gold discoveries. But he shows that this has real effects, that it leads entrepreneurs to make investments that later go bust. Um, and causes a general slump. So um, we take our cue uh, from Richard Cantillon, the Irish-French economist of the early 18th century, um, because he explained really for the first time uh, the impact of increasing the money supply Um, what determined interest rates, uh, what determined foreign exchange ratios, um, all of that for the first time. And he talked about how central banks, in his day, they were called national banks, uh, such as the Bank of London, the Bank of England, how they can cause booms in asset prices that are inevitably followed by uh, economic crisis. Yeah. And so we really take his lead uh, with respect to that. It all really begins by seeing how injecting money, which is hard to see, as I mentioned, and is assumed away uh, by most economists, how that really gets the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly gets the ball rolling. I mean, we're speaking on the, I think it's the tenth of December in the US, where you are is the eleventh in Australia. But you've just had a, a very high inflation reading over there, haven't you, in the states? Uh, I saw that this morning. You know that usually comes out after the effect. Yes, of, yes. Of the new money, the the new consumer good prices only come later. The first impact is typically on asset prices. Yes, uh, yes. That's where that's where that's what gets the ball rolling, and then it's only much later that the price increases show up. Not so much in asset prices and commodity prices and land prices, but in consumer goods prices, and that's what we're seeing uh, today. I think. Yeah. The consumer price index in the US today came out. And I think it's been like 35 years. It's the highest level in 35 years. Yeah, around that. Uh, so Financial Times is reporting US inflation hits fastest annual pace since 1982. So 
Consumer price index rises 6.8% in November, intensifying pressure on the White House as it seeks support for spending plan. That's how the FT is reporting it. I think you make a you make a great point about how it's the asset prices that increase before consumer prices. So and there's that lag there. So that suggests that central banks, if they're just focusing on consumer prices, they they could be they could be leaving monetary policy too loose for too long. Would that be a, a legitimate conclusion? Yes. Um, because the feedback is slow and uncertain, they very often don't return to normal or don't return to a non-activist a passive policy for way too long. Yeah. Um, and before I forget it, um, I know the, the expense of mailing my books over to Australia is, is really almost prohibitive, but <laughs> your audience can um, just do a Google search of my name and the titles of the book in PDF yep. and, get, and get free electronic copies of The Skyscraper Curse and my translation of Cantillon's essay. Great. I'll put some links in the show notes, Mark. That, that, that's terrific that uh, they're publicly that. available. That, that's excellent. Uh, just before we go, can I ask, are you tracking this at the moment? Are there any, I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm unaware of what the, the, what's going to be the next world's tallest building, but are you tracking that at the moment and what may be coming up and what we could be seeing? Well, I can tell you that, A, uh, there's a lot of big buildings, super skyscrapers being built, being planned, um, and then, of course, there's a lot of them that are just for fun in the terms of the planning stage. There was a world record-setting skyscraper started in Saudi Arabia, the Jeddah Tower or the Kingdom Tower, um, and that was put on hold uh, a few years ago. So that project stopped. But some of the current projects could be reworked into record-setting skyscrapers. But my main, I, I, if you, my main focus um, right now has been on commodity prices um, because um, I think commodity prices have risen, uh, grains and metals and, and coal. I mean, yeah. you guys have got the coal for <laughs> Asia and it's up from, you know, like, I don't know what it, it's setting, but it's gone from like 100 to 200. So yeah. Uh, that's great. We've in the United States, um, our total production of coal has already been sold for 2022. So I'm I'm looking at commodity prices, but higher commodity prices it's is what undermines financial plans. So when I'm an entrepreneur and I set out an industrial plan or a financial plan for some business, I estimate costs and I estimate revenues. And the skyscraper curse comes about when costs are greater than anticipated and sales and revenues are less than anticipated. And that squeezes um, all the financial performance of companies. And that's what sends stocks into a tailspin. So that's what I'm looking at right now is 
commodity prices and stocks, um, you know, in, in terms of their, their estimates or their projections for revenues. So you, I want to keep my eye on those things rather than looking way up in the sky uh, yeah. <laughs> for these skyscrapers. But yeah, that's all part of it. it uh, but now we're, we're more concerned with the nuts and bolts of all that. Right. Okay. Well, I have to. Um, I might have to check in with you after you've, uh, if you, if you're going to publish something on commodity prices. That's something I'd be very interested in because. So where I am here in a, in Australia, well, in Queensland, we're a major exporter of coal, and for the last decade or so, there have been some commentators that are saying, "Oh, coal's on the way out, and global demand is falling, and uh, we've got to get out of coal." And then suddenly we have this boom in coal prices. I mean, it, it's just gone absolutely uh, crazy. I mean, we're, the uh, coking coal price at times has got into the 300 to 400 US a ton range. Just uh, absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and that's going to be a huge benefit for both the industry and uh, for the state government here, which uh, collects royalties from the, uh, from the coal. So uh, we'll all benefit in a way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Any uh, final thoughts, Mark, before we close? Well, um, I do want to encourage your audience uh, to visit us at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and that's M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. We're the largest uh, economic webpage in the world, and all of our materials are, even our academic materials are accessible for the general population. And even if you're not interested in the economy, I mean, we've got articles, daily articles on things that matter to people, whether that's skateboarding or stock prices. We're, we're covering all of that stuff from the perspective of the Austrian school. And we also branch out a little bit into libertarian political theory as well. So um, it's a fresh, different perspective that you won't see in the mainstream press. And I appreciate this opportunity uh, to be on your podcast for sure and to, and to get to this audience. But, you know, and there's no fees or registration. We're open 24-7, 365. And like I said, it's accessible. Um, and it hits at all different levels of interest. And so I, I think that you'll find it, um, you know, a great addition to what people read um, on a daily or weekly basis. So you're oh, very yeah. much welcome to come and visit us. Oh, uh, thank you. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I know, uh, I know Darren uh, has published on the, the site before. And uh, yeah, I, I look at it from time to time for sure. And uh, there's there are lots of great resources there. You mentioned it's the largest, did you say largest web page in the world? Do you mean economic web page or do you? Yes, largest economic web page uh, because we have all of our books, all of our journals. We've got, um, you know, defunct libertarian journals that we carry. Um, and everything in the Austrian school, practically, including our academic journals, um, going back uh, forever. And we, we, you know, we have uh, all of the classics of Austrian economics and libertarianism. And you can see them 
which is great, online, all of the books that we actually publish are in that PDF form. So you can see what you're getting into, whether it's a 50 page or a 500 page, or whether it's on you know, the money supply or methodology, you can see all that before you dive into the, the book or the, the article, or if you wanna buy it, we sell everything at a discount, a student price for everyone basically. Uh, because we were, you know, outside the mainstream and we're trying to get as many people uh, exposed to the Austrian school because of that, because of being locked out of uh, the mainstream. And uh, so I think that, you know, people in Australia are probably already primed for this type of experience, you know, that. Australia and and people around the world have been um, in a state of flux, and I'm not going to get into the details there, but I can tell that Australians and and of course Americans too um, are not getting the answers or or the information that they need, and they they need to be checking in on your podcast um, on a regular basis. Uh, to get a different sort of information. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're um, alluding to is the the issues we've had here around the COVID response and, I mean, huge concerns about infringements of civil liberties and, um, yeah, I mean, just some some things that when you look at them objectively seem over the top and a little crazy. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, co- I've tried to cover that as best I can on on the the podcast in different episodes uh, the issue is that we do have uh, i mean for some we, we've had a lot of fear in the community about the disease and look some of that may be warranted because it is a serious disease but uh yeah the reaction i think we'll look back on it in a few years and we'll be horrified <laughs> with some of the things we've we've done it, it really has been extraordinary um so yeah thanks for um i think that's what you're alluding to mark yes yeah, very good. Okay. It's been fun watching some of that on on the internet, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I find extraordinary is when I watch the clips from the States and, and or from England and they're commenting on what they're seeing over here and uh, and I just have to yeah, say, yep, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. <laughs> um there are some there are some people over here who are uh, yeah, who are shocked by it. I mean, there there are the people who are out demonstrating, but the majority is still probably uh, supportive of many of those policies or it doesn't affect them personally. So they're not that bothered by it. They're just apathetic about it. Maybe that's a better description. I I really don't know. Um, But anyhow, um, hopefully next year will be better. Uh, Mark Thornton, uh, Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute. Thanks so much for your time today. And I really appreciated you taking us through the skyscraper index. Gene, I enjoyed this thoroughly and I hope to do it again sometime. Very good. Okay. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Okay. That's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. 
If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.